Welcome to the Software People Stories. I'm Shiv. I'm Chitra. And I'm Gaiti. We bring you interesting untold stories of people associated with the creation or consumption of software-based solutions. You'll hear stories of what worked and sometimes what didn't. You will also hear very personal experiences and insights that would trigger your thoughts and inspire you to do even greater things. In this conversation, Jeremy Snyder, the founder and CEO of Firetail.io, an end-to-end API security startup, shares his professional journey as well as perspectives on various things. Specifically, he starts with how he got into IT in the late 90s when technology was getting accepted by businesses and the early experience with Linux, Wax and Unix implementing various solutions for a translation agency. Having got an opportunity to evaluate different solutions, assess technology, find the right one that would fit, taking up support roles as well later on. When he got an opportunity, he got into infrastructure management and started liking that experience. He shares how the healthy struggle between developers and the IT infrastructure professionals could play out sometimes and how best to bridge the gaps and work together as a team. He talks about his experience in the early days of cloud computing in his roles with Amazon AWS and how the potential users needed to be convinced and actually gain trust that moving to the cloud is not going to compromise any of their security or privacy issues. Through these and other roles in smaller companies, getting a very good understanding of the security and vulnerability risks that companies could get exposed to, such as having to implement perimeter controls, endpoint protection, logging, monitoring, etc. And how the world is moving to more and more API-based architectures. Listen on. Hi, Jeremy. Welcome to the Software People Stories. Hey, Shiv. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. Uh, the moment uh, I saw your profile, uh, I was very curious. Usually, I don't do much of preparation because most of yeah. the guests are also kind of known. Uh, in this case, uh, I think there's a lot to talk about. But let's uh, okay. get ahead of ourselves and probably start with your origin story. Uh, how you got into IT, and then yep. what has been the various things that you've been uh, doing? Yeah, uh, well, how I got into IT was probably similar for a lot of people who graduated from university around the same period as I did, which is to say in the late 90s. Mm-hmm. And I think we were, I think it's fair to say we were at the very first days of technology coming into a lot of businesses. And so a lot of people like myself were young people, were just coming out of university. We've maybe been using technology at university. And so we're bringing some of those skills that we learned just you know, doing our studies, bringing those into the workplace for the very first time with a lot of organizations. I know for myself, for instance, during my own studies, I used like very early versions of Linux and some different, you know, Vax and Unix systems. 
and I got into my first job, which was at a translation agency. And they were just implementing a lot of IT for the very first time. And so there was kind of just this natural, like, oh, you're young, you know how computers work, <laughs> work on this technology stuff. Uh -huh. And honestly, that really started uh, my career in IT because we were implementing a software package from one of the big vendors in the translation technology space. Uh -huh. And um, that task got assigned to me, you know, both the evaluation of who are the different vendors, what's the best solution. And then once we selected it, which products did we need? How many licenses for whom getting it installed, getting them trained on the software, all of that was just a, oh, you know, you know how to do this stuff. You're, you're a young person, you know, computers go do that. That, that was really the beginning. Yeah. That's really interesting because you um, started looking at it from the user's perspective. Right? Not so much as a technologist who's creating a solution, but they're trying to find a solution that would fit. Uh, so how did you, you know, develop an empathy for or understand you know, what the translators needed? Um, so actually, I had two jobs at that company. So one was doing all the computer stuff around the okay. software implementation. But I also worked on proofreading and quality assurance for the translated documents. Oh. So I have some language skills of my own from just my own upbringing and exposure and maybe some natural natural talent and some studies that I'd done over the years. So I was doing quality assurance in five or six languages for documents that we were um, translating for our customers. Hmm. So I also had the user experience of working with some of the software day to day. My job was probably about 50-50, maybe okay. even more of the user side than the IT side, because like the IT side was a lot of work at the beginning, but once the software is up and running, then you know, you're know you just kind of doing the, the projects day to day. Mm -hmm. So I was working with desktop publishing tools and with office suites and with project management software, um, also with our CRM database, like all of these things I actually had to work with myself. So mm -hmm. I had to learn how they worked. I had to understand what's difficult, what's easy around using them. So I think I think that's actually a good point. It's a valuable experience to have empathy for the people that you're supporting. Yeah. And then what happened? So oh, moved I, around the world as well, right? <laughs> yeah, that came a little bit later, but okay. I actually... Um, I got a little bit frustrated with my job for various personal reasons. Mm -hmm. And I went to work for the vendor whose software I had implemented. Oh, okay. So they were growing a lot at the time and they were, you know, very eager to hire people who already knew their software. Mm -hmm. um, so actually I joined them with the idea that I would actually transition into software development. Mm -hmm. And I landed there in kind of an entry-level role. Uh, customer support, um, helping people with the software, which, you know, again, I already had that experience. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, hey, I'd studied some software development in university. So maybe it's time to go like become a professional software developer. Mm -hmm. Well, it turns out I wasn't very good at writing code. Mm -hmm. And like I tried and I tried a couple projects and I did some research work and wrote some reports and so on and just never really cracked into the R&D organization. But the company was growing so fast at the time that they were like, look, we have a lot of needs just on the pure IT side. Mm -hmm. You've already done kind of user support on our software. Go get some training, go learn around networking and, you know, infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And so I did that for the next 
well, seven years with that company and then two other companies where I like stayed much more on the IT infrastructure side. Mm. Um, so that was really the first kind of 13 years of my career were much more as a as a quote unquote IT guy, uh-huh. you know, really running on the infrastructure, yeah. building out data centers, server rooms, standing up servers, all of that fun stuff. Uh, yeah, usually we talk about, uh, you know, this uh constant tussle between the software developers and the IT people. Traditionally, we say that the IT people are uh, obsessed with uh, stability, with security, and so on, whereas uh, the developers probably want to roll out new features every day or uh, frequently. So how was that experience of uh, not just creating the infrastructure, but also working with developers? Uh, Frustrating, Um, (laughs) and especially in those days. Because I think that that friction that you mentioned, Mm -hmm. that was very real. um, Mm -hmm. And we experienced it over time. Mm -hmm. You know, we ran a lot of different software, server-side software at that organization. Mm -hmm. Um, Of course, a lot of desktop software in those days as well. Much more desktop software back then than we run nowadays, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because, you know, SaaS wasn't really much of a thing yet. There weren't a lot of things that you would, would be consuming you know, anybody who needed to, to draw a flowchart, for instance, we had to go install Visio on their desktop or on their laptop. There was no um, Figma or no Lucid chart that you could just go into a browser and create all these pretty pretty flowcharts and everything. Uh-huh. But look, I think the the experience for us was very much as you said. Our focus on the IT side was build out a robust network, build with some failover capabilities, build with some security designs. And then we very much had the position of, here's what we give you. Mm-hmm. Like, here is the server environment that you can deploy into. And in fact, you can't deploy into it. This is the server environment that you can design for. And we right. deploy into it, right? You mm-hmm. hand the software up to us. We stand it up. Mm-hmm. Uh, we will maybe collaborate with you in terms of service accounts that you need or um, credentials that you need for like system to system communication and data sharing and things like that. But we were quite restrictive in those days as far as what we could do. And I think like actually looking back, one of the weird things that I look back on is um, we were so paranoid about the overconsumption of system resources mm-hmm. that we always gave developers just tiny little slices of resources. Wow. Okay. And, you know, Actually, like at the end of that, especially at that first company where I stayed seven years, our average CPU utilization was never above like 5%. Wow. And so we're like just wasting 95% of our system cycles. But we had a CIO whose philosophy was like, you should always over provision. You always need a huge buffer and so on, but we never even came close to like a fraction of of the utilization that you would hope to see nowadays. Hmm. So, um, so some of the challenges around that, to come back to your question about like this tension between us on the IT side and the developers was stuff crashed. Hmm. Like if you were working in those days, probably, you know, you remember this, it's, it's a little bit hard to think about nowadays. Like now it's a big story when stuff is down. You know, if some big service, like let's say Slack goes down, you know, there are news reports about it and there are people like talking about it. It's a big deal. Mm. Back then stuff went down all the time. 
And, you know, our own service, like you would see hosting providers and so on, you would see like 98% SLAs. You wouldn't see, you know, 99, 99.5, 99.0, you know, not the classic five nines that we see nowadays, right? We just had much lower expectations and there was a lot more crashes. And it was always in those crash moments that that you would have this friction pop up. Hmm. And immediately the reaction is the developers point at IT and they say, oh, you know, some disk filled up, they forgot to clear some log files, whatever, you know, crash the operating system. Hmm. And then you would have us. And the first thing that we did is we would go through system logs and we would look for application errors and throw them back to kind of show them. And I remember once, for instance, to give you an example of this, we had a pretty major outage that impacted one of our top customers. Mm. And they were they were not pleased, to put mm-hmm. it mildly. Mm-hmm. And they were asking for credits against their hosting bill. Mm-hmm. And um, this was in the earliest days of our own, like we converted our own service into a SaaS offering. Okay. And um, and I I you know sent an email, we had an email thread discussing it post-event. And I sent a thing, say, hey, you know, the application crashed. And very like a minute later, I get an email back from the developer who wrote the app mm-hmm. and he, he removed everybody except me and him, okay. just a direct message from him. And he says, be careful. Or I will have to defend myself. Ah. <laughs> and, you know, this kind of like thinking that, you know, it's your fault, my fault. It wasn't a collaborative effort. It wasn't a kind of we're in this together attitude. It was mm. a, you know, we, because we put in place this regime mm. where we say you get this much mm-hmm. and they have to build for that and then hand off to us. It was, uh, it wasn't a very healthy, actually a very healthy process looking back on it. Mm. Yeah. So over the years, uh, I guess you've seen a lot of changes in technology and also the way uh, solutions are developed. It is no longer an individual or probably a small team. Yeah, but we're probably getting into uh, a lot of cross dependencies and ecosystems and uh, you know all these uh, distributed systems with uh, APIs uh, changing all the time and so on. Right. Yeah. So how did you kind of keep pace with this, and then uh, how did your current focus? Uh, yeah. Was that our sudden moment of realization or is that something that uh, was cooking for a while and it's actually it's been like a 10-year process wow and maybe even longer um so you know after i worked it for like 13 years uh Mm -hmm. it and cybersecurity, and had plenty of incidents had plenty of you know had some viruses had some breaches had some lost data had all of it right Mm -hmm. um I went to work for AWS at a very early stage in the development of cloud. So I started in 2010 with Amazon. Okay. And um, in those days, it was it was viewed as very much experimental. And mm-hmm. it was viewed as very much like, oh, you, you know, now it's the, the norm. Like it's, yeah. you know, if you're starting a company, your first move is to go on cloud, right? Mm-hmm. But back then it was very like, oh, this is risky. We don't know. We don't understand mm-hmm. it. We don't trust it, blah, 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 blah. But what Amazon was looking for at the time was people that had done a lot of time in data centers and working on infrastructure. And so people who understood kind of system design. Mm. 
And I think the interesting thing for me was when I started working there, I realized, first of all, how much, how many like hundreds of hours of my life mm. I had wasted building data centers and tearing data centers down and doing hardware maintenance mm. and how little value that actually added at the end. Mm -hmm. I mean, actually, I mean, if I'll tell you a story, if you don't mind, but sure, yeah. when the last physical data center that I worked in, mm -hmm. We ended up migrating it from East Coast to West Coast, oh. and we uh, here in the U.S. And we ended up having to do that over the Christmas break. Oh. Um, that was a that was a whole story of its own that maybe we can get into if we still have time later. But mm -hmm. one of the most interesting things around it was the way that we had built data centers in those days was we bought you know high end equipment mm -hmm. uh, from the likes of Cisco and HP and. Um, actually 3Com, which I don't know who acquired them in the end, but they were like a high-end switch maker. Mm -hmm. You know, we had very standardized hardware, full redundancy, redundant power supplies, redundant hard drives, redundant uh, processors, redundant memory banks. So if any one piece of hardware failed inside a system, like the whole server would keep going, the operating system should keep going. We even had a robot for swapping out tapes uh, for our backups. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we were running backups directly to tape over a network. I mean, like so many hundreds of thousands of dollars we spent on these systems, right? And then one day I noticed that in my data center, like half of the data center has been closed off. And, um, and you could see it. They actually had a chain link fence inside the room, like oh. inside the data center floor. Mm -hmm. And so you could see like that whole side of the floor was just empty. Oh. I said, okay, what's happening? What's happening? And then one day this moving truck shows up and it's these guys pushing in these like crazy looking metal racks and it's one piece of flat metal. And on that flat metal is four motherboards, mm -hmm. no casing, no power supplies, no hard drives, nothing hot swappable, mm -hmm. et cetera. And just a tower of these things, right? And they're just pushing in one after the other, after the other, after the other, after the other. And then they plug them in and we see them start to light up. Hmm. And like, you know, you're looking for green lights and you'd see like green, 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 red, green, green, red, green, 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 red. You're like, oh shit, these guys are going to have to have, do a lot of hardware maintenance to come around and swap out the failed components. Hmm. And then I started chatting with one of the guys and I asked them and I was like, well, what did you guys build here? It's like, oh, you know, we we custom build all our own stuff in Mountain View and then we ship it out to data centers around the world. Mm -hmm. And I said, yeah, but like, you know, maybe 10% of your stuff is lighting up red. It's it's already failed at boot. And he's like, yeah, that happened. <laughs> and I said, well, wait a second though. Like, what are you going to do about this? Like, because for us, every piece of hardware was precious. Yeah. And so we treated it that way. Uh -huh. And his attitude was, no, 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 no. No piece of hardware is precious. Mm. The application is precious. Mm. And the service that it provides to the users is precious. So we have to design hardware in a way that will keep that running. Mm. And it was just like such an opposite way of thinking to what we had been doing, mm -hmm. that it was such an eye opener. Mm. And so that was probably in the late 2000s, maybe 2005, mm -hmm. 2006. Mm. When I went to AWS and I started talking to some of the internal solution architects and they gave me the same story, it was like a little light bulb went off in my head and it's like, oh, actually the fact that you could have all this virtualized equipment mm -hmm. 
-hmm. And you can just design as many things as you need and stand them up and then shut them down mm -hmm. and design two of them for failover or four of them or six, seven, however mm -hmm. many you need and like let them self-manage and just program them to say, hey, when we reach a load of X, spin up two yeah. additional nodes. Yeah. And when it goes back down to Y, then spin them back down. Mm -hmm. Like this was revolutionary in my mind. And it mm -hmm. so changed my thinking around data centers that company that was building their own things out of Mountain View, mm -hmm. uh, you can probably guess they're the search engine that we all use every day. Mm -hmm. And it was just such a, a different way of approaching the same problem, yeah. but from the perspective, in a way, actually from the user perspective, as opposed to from the system's perspective. Uh -huh. So to come back to your question, all of these things that you observe over time, mm -hmm. like if you're not just doing the same thing again and again and again, and you actually do embrace some change. And then you try to understand like, why are different people doing it differently? And what can you learn from that? I think that's actually been one of the key things. And so the work that I do today is really like 10, 12 years down this process of getting away from running hardware-based data centers. Mm -hmm. And then just seeing like one step after the other, how it pulls you down the direction to mm -hmm. where we are today. Mm. But then how was that shift? Was that kind of scary or uh, was that the, the shift away from hardware or the shift into cloud or which part of it? Yeah. About you know, moving into everything that is software defined, whether yeah. it's a system, including your networking, they say SDNs and all that, when you could touch and feel and actually configure things. And now it is all probably from a console, you could do all that. Yeah. Um, we definitely used to talk about, you know, kind of the the server hugger mentality. <laughs> you know, I need to be able to go like hug yeah. my server and hold it and so on. And I think probably for the first, not so much for me because I was on the inside of Amazon, right? But for a lot of our customers in those days, the first experiences of trying it out and building trust in the cloud system and in everything being 100% software defined probably was scary. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I, I saw this pattern with a lot of my customers and it was mm. month zero, or let's say the first month that I talked to you, you don't even believe it. Mm. Right. And so a lot of the CIOs and CTOs that I went around and I talked to and I've run a little demo, look, I can stand up a server and a website and blah, blah, blah. They say, yeah, 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 whatever. Like Amazon bought too many servers. You're just trying to sell a spare capacity or something like that. We got that a lot, by the way. And then like maybe the next month they would come back and they would ask a question or two and just try to understand, well, how did that work? Well, how do I define my network and so on? Hmm. And usually the second or the third month after that, they would take one person, uh -huh. software developer, IT person, whatever, and one test project. And for whatever reason, in those days, it was very often SharePoint that mm. companies were struggling with, mm. like figuring out the right capacity, like the right infrastructure capacity for SharePoint. And um, and they would like look at moving like a copy of their SharePoint, uh, SharePoint site over into AWS mm. and then see if they could like make it available to the whole company worldwide or something like that. And, you know, it was just kind of that like step-by-step step, getting used to it, learning to trust it. And AWS was much simpler in those days, by the way. Like we didn't have, there was no IAM when I started there. There was no VPC. It was very simple, like 
you know, virtual servers, disks, that's it. Yeah. It takes some time, but customers, you know, they got there eventually and they understood and they, you know, would run a test project or something, a little pilot of one, one app or another. And then eventually they would figure out like there was so much benefit and they would usually move forward. Another curiosity question, you talked mm. about the friction between say the IT guys and the developers, uh, even when both were part of the same organization. Yeah. Now in this kind of a shift, when your IT is actually run by somebody somewhere, you don't even know who does what, where, when, and all that. Yeah. Were there also some uh, concerns that you needed to address, probably what we may call as the softer issues? Uh, first for this one developer, one project kind of a model, and then for them to take it further in the organization and probably jump in. Yeah, uh, definitely both. Um, but the one thing on the first one, let's say trusting an external organization, mm -hmm. the questions were usually two or three things would come up kind of consistently. One of them was typically like, hey, um, how do I know that you can fulfill your end of hardware and data center maintenance? Mm -hmm. How do I know that you keep the data center up and running? How do I know that you keep all the hardware functioning, et cetera? And, you know, there were some customers who always, always wanted a data center tour, which mm -hmm. we didn't do. <laughs> and, you know, it was kind of always a question of like, well, how are we going to move forward from this? You know, we we won't let you come to visit the data center. You say you won't move forward unless you can see the data center. Mm -hmm. And for those organizations, usually it came like they had to reach a breaking point when they were either like maxed out on their own infrastructure or somebody just said, forget it. And they just were going to go test something, take a leap of faith, pull mm -hmm. out their own credit card maybe and get started. Uh -huh. Um but then the other one that used to come up a lot was, how do I know I can trust you with my data? How do I know that you're not like breaking into my data? Mm -hmm. And for that one, you know, we would have, we had our internal reports, we had customer facing reports. We would also explain like the basics of the cryptographic setup around, um, you know, account security and things like that. And also show customers that they can run their own encryption on top of ours. And, you know, if they're really concerned, run your own encryption. We can't break it. Mm -hmm. Right. So, you know, your data is yours and it's protected. We have contractual uh, terms that we can show you. And then, we, you know, you have the technical controls. You can use both if you want. You know, so we we went through a lot of that as well. The second part is really the harder part, which is the internal cultural, you know, friction inside that organization of like, we want to go down this path. Mm -hmm. Part of the challenge there was very often people who thought that their jobs were at risk because, hey, if we're moving IT, you know, over to the cloud, what does that mean for us? If hardware maintenance has been a big part of my job for the last several years, you know, am I at risk? And what we tried to do for a lot of those organizations was try to help them understand like, no, no, in fact, the day-to-day -day maintenance of, let's say, changes to your to your SDI, your software-defined infrastructure, that can actually be more interesting and more time-consuming and provide more tasks for you to accomplish and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we provided training, we provided like, you know, 
guidance on for for customers and for people on how they could like kind of move their career path in one direction that would make them like more marketable in the future which i by the way i firmly believe in like it nowadays if you say like hey I, i'm a hardware infrastructure guy what are your job prospects versus i'm a like certified aws system administrator mm-hmm. you know you're much more heavily in demand if you're if you're in the cloud side so all these things, I assume that you, know, you were doing as an employee. Mm-hmm. So what was the bug that bit you to you know, start the company? And yeah. was the curiosity on, now why do you call it Firetail? Well, there was a couple stops in between. Uh-huh. So oh, okay. you know, I stayed at Amazon for a while. Um, I did eventually get the startup bug again and wanted to go back to a smaller company. Mm-hmm. Um, I did a little e-commerce thing that didn't work out so well. Um, then I did a uh, system integrator that was helping customers migrate to AWS. Okay. Um, so we did a lot of, you know, go talk to a large company who is in the middle of trying to figure out their cloud strategy, hmm. help them understand it. Of course, you know, having the background of understanding the platform well was was super helpful. Um, worked with some very large and some very challenging and very interesting organizations around the world on their cloud migration path. And um, that was really good for me, actually, because again, to your earlier question, like that forced me to keep learning. Mm -hmm. You know, we went through cloud 1.0, which was let me kind of replicate my data center in the cloud. Mm -hmm. But now we're seeing customers who want to do things more efficiently who mm-hmm. want that more programmatic approach with auto scaling and with mm-hmm. you know modern designs and so on. And then I did a cloud security company. I joined as employee number five or six. Um, you know, there were the founders and then three or four other people before me, but we uh we had this company that was helping a lot of a lot of the previous customers that I had worked with for the past few years, mm-hmm. helping them understand like as you're moving all this stuff over to the cloud, what security risks and vulnerabilities are you opening up in your organization? Hmm. And that was something that I think was also a big learning experience for me was, you know, security for how, or, or the say the, the tools and the approaches that we used in hmm. data centers for security were very different to what was required on the cloud side. Hmm. You know, almost everything from, let's say, perimeter controls to, endpoint protection to logging and monitoring, all of that actually became different. And really like one of the key differences was if I think about data center environments, my biggest risk is that I have either a firewall with some holes in it, mm-hmm. or I have like a vulnerable application, you know, publicly exposed. Mm-hmm. But actually what was happening on the cloud side was much more of the oh, I have a disk that I accidentally made public or I have a file folder that I accidentally made public. Like Mm -hmm. that was a bigger thing. And if I think about like in the data center world for that to happen, I need like four or five things to go wrong in my network configuration Mm -hmm. for like one folder to become public. Mm -hmm. But on AWS at that time, it was literally one configuration setting, like one bit that you set from zero to one. And this thing becomes public and all the data inside it becomes public. So it's a different set of risks and helping customers understand that was you know, really what our software did very well. Hmm. And so we kind of doubled our customer base every year for about four years running. We then got acquired in 2020. Um, it was partway along that journey that I started to see 
let's call it even the second wave of cloud uh, transformation. Hmm. And that was one, you know, that was, let's say, a more accelerated and more extreme example of what I talked about earlier, moving away from, let's say, replicating data center structures mm -hmm. to moving into more auto scaling, more cloud native. And this was even more extreme. Okay. So this is let's get away from servers period or virtual operating uh, virtual machines and operating systems and let's move towards containers and serverless functions and so on and one thing that we saw with customers in those years and this is kind of like 2019 2020 was as you make that shift you end up with more and more and more apis mm. and your apis are now the entry point to access a data and to access an application and so I really started thinking about the problem around that time period. I didn't do anything about it until, um, you know, until I started Firetail, but I started thinking about this problem of APIs back in that time frame. Uh, so while uh, the concept of APIs uh, is so powerful and it lets you literally you know, build fairly complex and cooperating systems, how should a developer you know, think when using APIs, because it's a completely different scale and so many different moving parts. Uh, how do you, again, from a security point of view, and of course, usually one thinks about the performance uh, with yeah. all this. Yeah. Yeah. Any thoughts on that? I asked Jeremy how a developer should think when using APIs with so many moving parts from security and performance aspects. The answer to that question and many more in the next part of the conversation. Do tune in next week. We thank Siddharth for the music and Anita for promoting the software people's stories. If you like this episode, please subscribe on your favorite podcast client and spread the word in your network. If you'd like to share your story, contact us at podcasts at pm-powerconsulting.com.